0: From the Old City, a Practical Torah Commentary by Gutman Lodge Exodus 6-2, Vayera, Hashem, the name. In this week's portion of the Torah, God tells Moshe that he is appearing to him as the one whose name is Hashem, But he appeared to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, only as the one whose name signifies sufficient. The name that represents Hashem is the highest manifestation of any of his names. But the Torah clearly states that Hashem appeared to Avraham and to Yitzchak. So what does he mean now when he says that he did not appear to them as Hashem? Hashem appeared to the forefathers as the one and only God. This was a tremendous revelation because at that time the entire world believed that there were many gods as do the majority of people alive today but now Moshe was learning something more he was being shown that not only is Hashem one and not only is he the only god actually he is the only one who exists at all this higher perspective was not revealed to the forefathers Even to say that God is one is not such a simple teaching. We must understand that although He has many names, and each name represents a unique aspect or function of God, still He is a constant, single one. But the idea that Hashem is all there is is a much more difficult teaching to understand. After all, aren't we here too? Since the Torah is saying that He is all, Is this really saying that we are Him? The entire creation, the higher and the lower, are constantly being created each instant by Hashem's will. The creation is His will, and He and His will are one. As an analogy, it is as if God, with His breath, is blowing creation into being, and He and His breath are one. The creation is actually His voice, as He says, let there be. So although we are His creation, we are not simply His creation, rather the entire creation, including us, is an actual aspect of Him. The concept that God is all is found in many places in the Torah, but is almost always hidden, as it is the deepest mystery of all. A primary source that reveals this concept is... Know this day and take it to your heart that the Lord is God. In the heavens above and upon the earth below, there is nothing else. The name Yudke Vavke. This name of Hashem signifies the entire existence as the one who was, is, and will be. Its actual pronunciation has been lost, perhaps intentionally, to prevent abuse. Even though we do not know its true pronunciation and therefore could not misuse the actual name, still we do not even try to pronounce it. This prevents any possibility of profaning it. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the temple was standing, the high priest would pronounce this name as it is actually spelled, and all who were present would fall to their faces and prostrate themselves before the one God, who revealed his presence in that holy place. The written letters of this name actually form a diagram of this aspect of God. Hashem, literally the name, usually refers to God. But here we are referring to the actual name. The Yud signifies the upper realm, as the entire letter is written only in the upper area of the line. According to the Kabbalah, the letter K signifies the revelation of self through giving. So the K following the upper letter, the Yud, signifies the revelation of the self through giving of the higher existence that the Yud represents. The K is shaped like a house or structure, so it represents the revelation of what is, what is readily found, or being. The Vav signifies the drawing down of the Yud, since its shape is actually a downward continuation of the Yud. The final K, like the first K, means the revelation of self through giving. But here, since it is following the Vav, It signifies the revelation of the self-giving, that which is drawn down and being the lower existence, that is, the lower structure. The first two letters diagram the revelation of the higher existence, and the last two letters diagram the revelation of the lower existence, the manifested creation. The name shows as if pictographically, that Hashem is the one and only in the upper existence and the one and only in the lower existence. He is revealing an aspect of himself by becoming both the upper, unmanifested worlds and the lower, actualized worlds. This name shows that he is all that exists at any level. To our forefathers and to those who follow in their ways, he showed himself as the one who is sufficient, the one who provides for all of our needs. To Moshe and to those who follow Moshe and the Kabbalah, he shows himself not only as the sufficient one, but also as the only. It's only magic. In this week's portion of the Torah, God assures Moshe that everything will turn out as he said it would. He commands Moshe to appear before Pharaoh to tell him to let the Jewish people go so they may worship him. He also tells Moshe that when Pharaoh asks for proof that indeed it is God who is commanding this, Moshe is to have his brother Aaron throw down his staff, which will become a snake. Moshe does as God commands him. Pharaoh sees Aaron's snake, and he calls upon his magicians and sorcerers. They chant their magical formulas, and they also produce snakes. And even though Aaron's staff, his snake, eats the sorcerer's staffs, their snakes, Pharaoh still considers this to simply be another form of magic, and he hardens his heart. From this episode, we can learn the answer to a deep mystery that happened hundreds of years before this scene took place. When Avram sent the children he fathered with Keturah away from Yitzchak, the text tells us that he gave them gifts. Our sages explain that these gifts were unclean powers. Avram loved all of his children dearly and wanted only good for them. So why then did he give them these unclean powers? The Torah says that Abram gave everything that he had to his son Yitzchak while he was still alive, and to the sons of the concubine that he had, he gave them gifts and sent them away eastward. First, we must ask if Abram gave everything he had to Yitzchak, what then did he have left to give to the children he was sending away? The answer is, Abram did give everything he had to Yitzchak, but the property inherited from his wife, Sara, he gave to those other children. When Avimelech kidnapped and then released Sara, he gave her these powers and other gifts to show that he did not molest her. Abram did not want his son Yitzchak to have such unclean things, but he knew that he was sending his other children to a land where this power already existed. If these children were sent to that land without these wondrous powers, and they had seen these powers in the hands of the Eastern magicians and sorcerers, they would have become servants to them. But since they too had these powers, when the sorcerers tried to impress them with their mystical deeds, these children would simply say, It's only magic. See, we can do it too. And this is why Pharaoh was not impressed with Aaron's wonders and why he needed more and more signs until he would finally give up. But just a minute, didn't God say to Moshe when he first sent him to Pharaoh that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart? If so, what choice did Pharaoh have? How could it be that so many disastrous signs and wonders came upon him, and still he would not give up? Surely if it were not for God having hardened his heart, any normal ruler would have given up long before. So did Pharaoh have any choice at all in the matter? If God was hardening his heart, what could he have done? In truth, Pharaoh had long ago hardened his heart to the cries of the Jewish people he so cruelly enslaved. He did not listen when their mothers cried out for mercy for their sons' lives. And now God was returning to him just what he had done to the Jews. But why did God send the one to Pharaoh in the form of a snake? He could have turned a staff into any number of things. Every time the Torah uses the same word in two places, it is suggesting that they might have something in common. This is true of all repetitions in the Torah, whether they be words, letters, or numbers. The Torah cannot use the word blue to mean one thing here and a totally different thing somewhere else. And although each usage may have its own unique qualities, it would be unfair to call something red if it really was blue. Therefore, we should look at the original usage of the word or concept snake and see what we can apply to Moshe and his staff. We see that in the garden, it was the snake that convinced Chava, Eve, to eat of the forbidden fruit. He told her that when she does eat of it, she will see that she is like God. Pharaoh taught his people that he was actually God. So now this very snake that had led mankind through Chava to see that they are like God, has come to the man who said, He is God. By now, this far into the story, we have to ask ourselves that if we see that the limitations of Egypt are slavery, how then are we to live in the physical world? How are we to provide for ourselves? How do we support our families and not become slaves? Pharaoh would give a stipend to his priest. It was from this money that they survived. Are we to become wards of the state in order to be free to serve God? In the description of the plague that God sent against Egypt's cattle, there's an obvious hint that answers this important question. How do we go out into freedom from our own personal Egypt and still survive in the physical world? God told Moshe to say, God shall distinguish between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Livestock is a metaphor for wealth. In those days, a man's wealth was measured by how many sheep he had. When flocks are accumulated, while having served only the physical goal, as Egypt's flocks were gathered, then the possessions actually end up owning the possessor. But when the goal is spiritual, so the physical is used merely as a tool to accomplish the spiritual goal, then God makes a distinction between these two flocks. To explain, when you are on your way to do a mitzvah, all the steps on the way are also part of that mitzvah. And the opposite is also true. That is, if you are going to work merely to make money for its own sake, then you will eventually become enslaved by your own desires. Possessions that have not been tithed are forbidden for use. These possessions have the holy tithe spread throughout them. This holiness can be used only for entirely holy purposes and not as mundane possessions can be used. Possessions that have not been tithed are like the flocks of Pharaoh. They are gathered without concern for the holiness that is inherent within all things. But if you are going to work to make money even the very job that the Egyptian slave did, so that you can acquire the proceeds in order to do a good deed, then that same work becomes holy work. If you're going to work to make money to support a righteous family, to pay for Jewish education, to have guests on Shavas, to build a sukkah, or whatever good deed you wish to do, then that work becomes holy work. Once you set aside the minimum, required 10% of your income for charity, this removes the forbidden holy fruit from the 90% and renders it permissible. This remainder is not merely permissible, but since it generated and provided the holy 10%, it now assumes its own elevated spiritual status. Because the holiness of the tithe has been removed, the remainder assumes the status of an object that has served the holy object, and as such has its own unique level of holiness. These are the flocks of Israel. There is Thereisone.com